0: Okay, so we're moving into our next three-month cycle. So, if you're, you know, coming new or joining us for the first time, each year Tori and I decide a, a teaching theme, and this year we decided to do the threes, so different categories of threes, three characteristics. We just came out of off the three um, poisons or the three delu- the three unwholesome roots of greed, hatred, and delusion, and now we're moving to what's called the three pillars. The three pillars. So it's different three pillars that we can find, but the ones we're working with are some that I believe that Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg and Jack Kornfield decided to kind of establish as this tradition came here to the West. Because it's such it's kind of a foreign transi- you know, transition or trans- trans- um, tradition here in the, you know, the, our normal society. So they wanted to bring sila, or ethical behavior, into the forefront of the practice, generosity, or dana, and also the cultivation of wisdom. So tonight I'll be focusing on wisdom, but I want to speak a little bit about how these three pillars really support each other. We can take one at a time and look at them, which we will, but also seeing how they work and, and really are interrelated with each other. Now. It's helpful to think about when we first start to practice, before we actually start to practice, most of us are kind of a little self-absorbed. You know, there's a sense of, you know, kind of everything's about me, whether it's look at me or look how bad I am or whatever it is, that's a very core piece of who we are. You know, we're trying, we're trying to protect ourselves, we're trying to prove ourselves. There's a lot of kind of selfing going on around that process. And in that, we often are a little isolated from other people. There's a sense of separation, of distance. And those two qualities have the effect also making our minds very busy. We have lots of thoughts going on, we're worrying, we're reminiscing, uh, we're reflecting on the past, remorse about the past, fear about the future, anticipation. So there's a lot of stuff going on in the mind. So when we look at these other two aspects of... Donna and Sila, how those help develop the foundation for wisdom to start to grow. You can just touch upon that for a moment. So Sila, or ethical conduct, really allows us to start to relax in ourselves. We start to feel like, okay, I'm, I'm acting in a way that's based in non-harm, that's based in kindness. Versus if I'm always stealing and harming or I'm lost in intoxication, misusing my sexuality. All these aspects tend to create a lot of internal turbulence, a lot of internal chatter that we're trying to look over our shoulders, justify ourselves, defend ourselves. And as we start to become more and more aligned in an ethical way, something in us starts to settle. We become more quiet internally. Maybe our guilt, our shame starts to quiet down, or at least it's not being continually justified by our our current actions. And the same thing with generosity, that we start to look upon the group. You know, who needs our help? Who needs our time, our money, our support? Whether it's generosity just of, of meeting someone and having that kind conversation or supporting someone who might need some help that shifts us from that self-centered perspective into interconnection. We start to see that we're part of, of a whole. This also starts to brighten the mind. mind becomes more happy. And also we become more settled in that. So these two aspects of sila and generosity, or dana, start to create this beautiful foundation for wisdom to start to grow for wisdom to start to arise from that, that base. And as wisdom starts to grow, then it, it re-informs how Dana shows up and how Sila shows up in our lives. So now let's talk a little bit more about wisdom. So wisdom, we're talking about what's called the near enemy, this is a, a, a fun term in, in this tradition where near enemy means some state that is kind of a little bit like the state we're looking for, but, it's a, but we can mis- mistake it. So instead of wisdom, we have knowledge, okay, ideas, concepts. So understanding that process, understanding how and where true wisdom starts to flow from, you know, from our direct experience. How wisdom really needs to be tempered, informed, and really a part, an aspect of compassion. How compassion and wisdom are really intertwined and one and the same. How they're really parts of the same essence. So let's talk about that near enemy, that state that we can confuse for wisdom. And this is, this is knowledge, the sense of ideas, of concepts, and for many of us, we come into practice from that gateway. We hear some teachings, say, Wow, well, that really sounds interesting. I want to learn more about practice. And that's, that's, that's a great gateway. Something might resonate in us. And then we reflect on it, we talk about it, and we practice with it. And at some point, it starts to transform from being a knowledge to something that we actually directly know, something that's really embodied it starts to grow in us into wisdom through our direct knowing, our direct experience, in a way that becomes undisputable, like we know it for ourselves. Now, knowledge, ideally, that's where it goes, and we'll talk about kind of that movement. But sometimes we can kind of stay stuck in the knowledge level, you know, this idea of how, this is how the truth is. This is the Buddhist truth. Maybe we've traded our, Christian truth or scientific truth for the Buddhist truth, but there's there's kind of a way that has that harshness, that isolation and it 's really this this inner transformation from this external knowledge into this inner knowing. so I want to give you two examples to kind of ground that a bit for my own own life, my own experience. first one is around. Really, the first Dharma teaching I heard was given by this teacher who said, okay, your suffering is actually, you can make it into a mathematical formula, that your experience that you're having times your resistance to that experience equals the suffering that you're going to feel, right? So the more suffering you feel, it's because of how much resistance you have to that experience. Big experience without much resistance, not a lot of suffering, a small experience with a lot of resistance creates a lot of suffering. Not zero resistance to whatever experience means there's no suffering arising. So when I first heard that teaching, it really caught my eye you know, for a, you know, a couple of reasons. One, I was going through a, a very difficult breakup of a, a long-term committed relationship. And in that time, there's all the turbulence, all the fear about the future, all the emotional pain, very hard time. And so to hear that, well maybe some of this suffering isn't just the circumstance, but how I'm relating to it. And resistance also really caught my eye, because at the time I was very involved in the martial art of Aikido which if you, anything, you know of anything about it, there's a lot of blending, a lot of kind of nonviolence with that. It's not about overcoming someone with force, but blending with them and actually using their force to kind of neutralize the, the aggression. So resistance and non-resistance is really tied to that whole practice, that whole art form. So, I really, that was my theme for many years is how do I not resist this moment's experience? How do I not fight it? So, I would practice with that idea, with that concept. I would try to get more and more into it. And tied with that is like the second dart. I think you're all hopefully familiar with that teaching that we get hit by uh, some kind of Pain in our lives, whether it's physical pain, emotional pain, mental pain, that's like an arrow hitting our bodies, piercing our bodies. There's going to be pain for us, whether we're just off the street, if we've been practicing for many years, even for uh, the noble one, one of the, the, the Buddha or one of his uh, enlightened followers. We're all going to experience a level of pain with that initial dart. We add another level when we, we resist it, when we fight it it amplifies the pain. It's like giving ourselves a second wound. So I was practicing with this, and I I would have deeper understandings of what it meant to not resist the moment and to not add that, that quality. And then I had, life gave me an interesting experience. I had a kidney stone attack on a retreat, right? So the retreat context, I didn't really know what it was at first. I thought it was just a bad gas bubble or something. And being kind of a young, stoic kind of guy, I would just try to to work with it and practice with it. So I wasn't like sitting in the hall meditating. I was in my room kind of writhing in pain, but you know, I thought, okay, I'm gonna kind of practice with this. And then after, <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say it, after three days, I finally went to get some help and they diagnosed it as a kidney stone and gave me morphine and I suddenly felt much better from that, right? but i was trying to meet i was trying to work with the pain i was trying to work with my resistance all along with that right so i thought i understood that and the kidney stone seemed to have disappeared i thought i passed it but a month later that kidney stone actually was just stuck in my ureter and started to move again and you know right away the pain came back but it was amazing to see the intensity of the pain and right after that almost instantaneously was all my fear around that previous experience. All the fear of how much it costs to go to the ER without good insurance and all the uncertainty and all the pain it just amplified the whole experience of suffering tremendously. And I could see, oh that's what they mean by resistance. That's what that mean they mean by that second dart. Right? So you can see how this this concept that really grabbed my ear of resistance times experience equals suffering. It's a way of forming the second noble truth, right? I got to experience that in a way that was undisputable. I knew that, okay, this is what it means to add resistance, the fear, the, the future tripping, the past tripping around this experience and how that made the, the pain much more intense. Right? So that's this movement from knowledge into wisdom, just something that I know in my bones what that feels like. the other example was I had the privilege of, of being with my grandfather for a little bit a week or so near the end of his life when he was on hospice and and dying from cancer, and hanging out with him and playing chess and just talking to him, and he was you know talking about this this his dying, I mean, that, that experience. And he, he was a Christian person, and he had um, he said that this, this phrase from the Bible, that this too shall pass, was often considered a very significant phrase. And he just kind of put it out there, and, you know, of course, he's getting he near the end of his life, so it had this significance. And I took that in. And then a few days later, he wanted to shave. You know, he was usually the clean-shaven clean person and and wanted to find his you know get you know get to the bathroom so he cleared the hallway so his wheelchair he could get down to his bat to the bathroom and I, I remember to this day when he first saw his image in the mirror and just the shock of seeing how much he had changed how much he had deteriorated he said is that me is that me Right. And as I witnessed this, I saw that, okay, this concept that this too shall pass suddenly got a lot more personal. It got a lot more real. And this is this movement from this kind of, because knowledge keeps us a little abstract, a little removed from this. It's kind of nice. I can put it on my shelf. I can say, oh, I have this knowledge. But wisdom means we have to really see it in a very personal, direct, immediate way. It's like, oh, this actually applies very deeply, very fully to myself, that this life will pass, this life will end. So both of these examples show the power of, of that compassion, really. Compassion is that willingness to turn toward pain, to turn toward what is suffering, and to be next to, to be in relationship to. And that brings it from knowledge from this abstract level into this very personal level. That personal level starts to transform us, starts to change us in a deep way. We can think of this as this movement from really our heads, you know, from our, our knowledge, our ideas, into our hearts, into our bodies. Now, our ideas in our heads, you know, the concepts we have might be completely accurate, right? It might be completely true. But when it's held still at the knowledge level and at that level, it doesn't have the same power and way to transform us. And when it starts to come into our hearts and our bodies, we see it in a way that's indisputable, like I really see this directly. It's not something that someone told me, I see it then the mind kind of reorients to it. The mind sees and clarifies, oh yeah, that was the truth that I was seeking. I see it for myself. Now, truth versus, or not truth, but knowledge versus wisdom. Let's explore that a little bit and how we can relate to it. Because they have a very different kind of subjective feeling to them when I'm really in a place of knowledge and opinion and idea, I have something that I kind of take ownership of. I have something that I want to defend and protect and kind of say I'm right and someone else is wrong. Right? And if someone questions me or disagrees with me, then all this, you know, that energy comes up around trying to justify and prove my point. You know, we all know, think we all know that. You know, As we come into the political realm, you can just see that displayed in really intense ways. So there's this sense of having to prove yourself right, prove some, someone else wrong. But wisdom, on the other hand, it doesn't really need to be defended. It doesn't really need to be justified or explained, because it's something that we've seen through our direct experience. We see it very directly, in a very immediate way, in a a way that actually transforms us. That's what wisdom starts, we can hold knowledge, it can make us more adept in our jobs, there's nothing wrong with knowledge. But from a wisdom standpoint, we're looking at what transforms us, what actually starts to change us in a deep way. Knowledge also has that sense of being something we own, something we've acquired. Okay? I know this now. I know this, this thing, this fact, this idea, this philosophy. So there's a kind of a possessiveness around it. While wisdom, when we have those moments of wisdom opening up, it actually feels more ownerless. Like it's something more universal. It's not something that we made or acquired, but more something that was revealed, that we allowed it to be seen, to be uncovered. It feels like it belongs to all of us. It doesn't just belong to any individual person. Knowledge also has a sense of kind of being kind of final, like this is the facts, this is it. It's something that I've solved the equation, I've solved the problem, I've written the book, and now I can put it on the shelf and say, "Look, I have this this knowledge." While wisdom has a sense of always being somewhat formless, kind of go- points to what's wordless. You know, again, from this Buddhist perspective, it's always in a sense of motion. It's always changing, always evolving. So it's not like a final statement. It's more like a relationship to reality is probably a better way of saying it. A relationship that's constantly arising and passing. There's a sense of us constantly arising and passing. And sometimes we have different pathways into practice. For myself, uh, my main teacher, Rodney Smith, didn't do a lot of classical Dharma teaching. You know, he did a lot more, I and mean, we could describe what he's pointing toward, but it wasn't so like, here's the different lists and you have the three characteristics and here's the 10 dependent origination cycles and the seven factors of awakening and the four noble truths and all of that. That wasn't a big part of his teaching. He taught in a very engaged, passionate way, pointing toward the nature of reality. So that's how I practiced for about 15 years or so. And then I started to take more of a a um, little bit more, not so much academic, but more formal study. And it was interesting to see, as I studied, I could recognize what I was studying in what I had experienced. So it had a very, an aliveness to it. Other people, we start with the study. We start to learn the different lists of Buddhism, some of the different threes and the list of fours, the list of fives, and that really engages us. And sometimes the study can kind of get in our way a little bit because it, it's comforting, right? It's comforting to know, okay, I have something I can hang my, my, uh, myself on. It's like, okay, I, I don't, don't know how to deal with my relationships. At least I know what the, four, the five hindrances are. I know how the, you know, the seven factors of awakening. At least I know that, right? So sometimes it can get in our way a little bit. I was listening to a talk by Joseph Goldstein, one of the people, pioneers, who brought this practice back from the East. And he was reflecting that he used to hear this phrase from the Buddha that, um, cling, you know, don't cling to anything, basically. Don't cling to everything. Or clinging you know, causes suffering. And for a long time, he just heard that as something to just be, take a note of. Then finally, he heard it in a different way. He heard it as instructions. It's like it's meant to actually don't cling, actually practice not clinging. Practice not clinging to the five aggregates. Practice not clinging to that sense of self. So finding some part of the practice, some part of the teachings which resonate with you, which like kind of catch your your ear, that become your heart kind of comes forth and see if they're true in your direct experience. See if they actually show up in the testing ground of your relationships, of your roles, your activities, your jobs. Because if they don't show up there, then either there's there's something abstract about the teachings or there's an integration that's really needed, integration into, into the fabric of your life. Because we all have this really wonderful kind of portable laboratory we carry around with us we have our our mind we got our body and our heart that's that's enough to show us all the dharma in fact sometimes the struggles of life especially being lay practitioners give us more opportunity to explore some of these dharma concepts actually see how do they show up how do i relate to impermanence how do i relate to dukkha? How do I relate to non-self? You know, how does greed show up? How does delusion? How does hatred show up? Can I see that from a dharmic lens? Can I allow that to actually start to transform me? Pay attention and see if these teachings apply, see if they're actually true. Often like to frame meditation practice as really Developing this ability to see and perceive clearly. To see through our distortions. Because usually we look out upon the world and we look internally and really seeing from our conditioning, from our past history, from our past actions, beliefs, it really changes the way we see the world. We're seeing it based on what we already know. This poem I love to read by Samuel Green, that everything we see carries the burden of what we know until we let it be itself again. Walking the yard with coffee cooling in my hand, I stop at a single seed of hawksbeard, balanced on a blade of grass, except for paying attention, what else is continual prayer? Everything we see carries the burden of what we know until we let it be itself again. Right? Such a, Beautiful way of describing the practice. Describing the power of meditation is we're letting things be themselves again. And we have to release what we know about them to actually allow the aliveness to be seen. And in that aliveness is where wisdom grows. So the meditation practice starts to peel away those layers of distortion, of opinion, idea. So we let things be themselves again. That direct experience, that moment of direct experience is where wisdom starts to arise. For those who have been meditating for a while, I think we all have experiences that we've met something in our, our life. Maybe a painful emotion or a memory, even just a momentary sensation in our body. And if we truly met it without our normal resistance, without our normal argument, and just allow ourselves to really perceive it, to really connect with it, that moment of connection actually transforms. It changes something in us. So clearing, you know, our distortions of thought, of ignorance, greed, hatred, you know, that moment of contact has a powerful way of transforming us. I was, I'm teaching an intro class right now, and a student asked a question uh, last Thursday. And she's new to practice, and not talking about Buddhist concepts, we weren't talking about that, we are just talking about how do you meet the, the moment's experience, how do you ground in the moment. And she asked this, she said that when she found herself thinking about the past, or thinking about the future, she felt much more intact, much more defined. She knew who she was. And when she connected to the present moment, she found she was much less defined, much less identified. And she has said, is that anything, is that n- normal, or is that what? Is that anything to do with practice? Right. So I love that sincerity that she just saw that directly for herself. She saw the formation of self and how that really depends upon our minds thinking into the future, thinking into the past. And as we really connect to the present moment, that sense of self starts to become much thinner, starts to dissolve more and more. And in that dissolving, there's the freedom that starts to arise, starts to show itself. So, wisdom isn't something that we do generate in our, in our heads, or our ideas, our minds, is something that really comes into our direct experience. Once it comes into our direct experience, then there's, of course, a recalibration, a reintegration with our minds and with everything we can understand it, understand the ramifications and, and kind of flesh it out. There's a famous sutta uh, called the Kalama, uh, kai, or kal, kalamai K-A-L-A-M-A Sutta Kamala Sutta and so this is a clan that was was hanging out and they had lots of different teachers coming through and they were all kind of saying this is the truth and that last guy who came by he doesn't know what he's talking about right? so there's there, you know, each person would come through where they would kind of proclaim their understanding and say, this is the right way. Everyone else is wrong. And so when the Buddha came to this town, they said, we're really confused. <laughs> who's telling the truth and who's lying? You know, how can we tell the difference? Right? And so the Buddha said, don't go by reports, by legends, by traditions, by scripture, by logical conjecture, by inference by analogies, by agreement through pondering views, by probability, or by the thought. This contemplative is our teacher. Instead, know for yourself. Know in your direct experience whether something is helpful, is it beneficial, does it lead to more suffering, or does it lead to more uh, freedom? You know, Where does it lead? And when you adopt it and carry out, does it lead to more harm and suffering? Then you know that for yourself. If you adopt it, and it leads to easing of that suffering, to welfare and happiness, then know that. And this is such a, I think many of us really appreciate this with with Buddhist teachings, because perhaps we grew up in a tradition that we had someone telling us, this is the truth and you have to adopt it. You have to believe it. You have to take it on faith, value. Right, And at least the way we tend to explore Buddhism in this, in this culture and its sims, it's much more of teaching you the capacity to see for yourself, to see clearly and directly for yourself. We might say, you might want to look over here to see. But it's really self-informed. It's informed through your own experience. It's not a belief-based. It's really experience-based. And we start to have that capacity to open to our own inner experience, that becomes this beautiful and profound way that starts to show all the teachings. We start to see, oh, the five aggregates, I can actually see them working real time in this mind-body complex. I can actually see the hindrances, I can see dependent origination, you know, we can start to, it becomes really encouraging to see that. And it's something that people can't take away from you because you've seen it for yourself. And of course there's doubt, there's confusion that comes up. We don't have any idea sometimes. And that's part of the journey too, is learning to see through that, to learn to clear our minds from our our greed, our hatred and delusion as we explored last month. And all this is what provides the, the grounding for wisdom to start to grow more and more. So with wisdom, holding as something that just ideally isn't something you just keep in your minds or keep in your your heads, but something that transforms the very way you are in the world. It's something you may just find that naturally you relate to someone in a different way, in a kind way. You have this non-harm that comes forth. There's a clarity internally. You know, there's hopefully a softening that goes over time of less self-hatred, less less self-judgment, more of an openness that deepens as our practice deepens. And we can start to see wisdom and compassion are really one and the same. They both flow together. All right, so let's just sit quietly for a couple of moments, letting those words settle, and then uh, say a few things about the homework, and then see if you have any things you'd like to share. And as we sit together in this moment, not trying to create wisdom or find wisdom, but just trusting, just trusting this simple practice of being present, being awake, being open-hearted to the moment, will allow wisdom to arise at its own pace, its own doing, its own timing. All right, thank you for your kind attention. So the homework has two parts. Okay, the first part is to reflect upon areas in your, your life, areas of your initial knowledge of the Dharma has been transformed your, to embody wisdom, through your direct experience and clear seeing. All right, just reflect on things that you used to, maybe you heard about the Four Noble Truths, or you heard about something like a more modern way of like the resistance times experience equals suffering and how something changed over time that you understand it in a very different way you know how that change happened maybe just gradually opening to it maybe something like impermanence or something like non-self whatever it might be just reflect on how you have a different relationship to it through practice and through paying attention to how life presents itself And the other aspect is to choose some Dharma teaching that maybe you've kind of kept a little bit more into that intellectual perspective, a knowledge base. Just pick something simple and see if you can bring it to life within the context of your own life, with your relationships. Like, how does it show up when I'm talking to my partner, to a stranger? How does it show up when I'm doing the dishes? How does it show up when I'm doing something very mundane? You know, and see if that teaching doesn't start to come life, come to life in the midst of those activities. See for yourself if the teachings bring more ease and clarity to your life. Notice that also. All right, any questions about that homework? Makes sense? So next week, I'll offer a recap of this talk and then have a chance for you to have some some dialogue with each other. Those are such essential parts of, of growing in the Dharma is a chance to listen to other people, share their, their experience and their, their challenges and their insights, and for you to practice speaking your own understanding. You know, it really brings a lot of um, connection to the Sangha, connection to your own practice. Whether you're online or in person, we'll have those opportunities and then we'll have some larger group questions. And now speaking of that we have a chance for any sharing or questions you might have around this particular topic a wisdom or anything else around the dharma is perfectly welcome so those online you can raise raise your virtual hand and those in the room you can raise your physical hand and we have a mic set up so they can hear you online Okay, Dave, thank you. Test, test. So I think this is a kind of silly question because it was the main point of your talk, but if there's there's something I know in my head and I want to know it in my heart, I just keep noticing, right? Okay, so the question is around if there's something that you know in your head but you want to know in your heart, do you just keep Questioning it. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's it's. Yeah, I just kind of said, <laughs> I just kind of told you to do it, but I didn't really say how to did I? And and that's that's an interesting point because there was a, a lot of things I could say about it. One thing I just that comes to mind is that um, was it Rumsfeld that said something like, "There's the things, there's the known things that we know, and there's the unknown things we know we don't know." And there's also the, the things we don't know that we don't know. And I would also add, there's things we think we know, but we don't really know. <laughs> right, so that's part of the power of delusion, is we get really confused about things. You know, and so however, holding that sense of questioning. And to make it really simple, you just notice kind of these two modes. One mode is that sense of, okay, I kind of know this. And there's a, there's an echoing solidification you feel more solid. Like, okay, I, I know this. It's like, I don't know why this comes to mind. Like, do you ever see The Matrix when you start to get all that stuff downloaded? Like, okay, now I know jujitsu. You know, it's like, okay, I know this. You know, and so there's a way that we feel kind of solid in it. You know, we, we're oriented. Okay, I, I know this. I know that I know this. There's that mode. The other mode is more of that wordless wonder, kind of the mystery. It's like you know, I, I can't put words to this, and yet there's something that's kind of revealing itself. It's kind of showing itself. It's like this constant flow of a fountain or of, of a of a um, a flower that's that's you see like a time lapse. It's trying to unfold, right? It's in process, right? So that's a very different way that we go into the relationship to it, versus okay, here I know. So just start to notice that which mode, because it's. It's hard to think your way into wisdom. Sometimes you can, you can just, you know, till you exhaust all the possibilities and finally you give up. Or sometimes like with um, some traditions like Zen, the Renzai method, they do a Zen riddle. So like, what's the sound of one hand clapping? So your rational mind's trying to figure it out, trying to figure it out until finally it just kind of collapses and gives up. And then that mystery comes forth. You know, and so it's it's a bit like that. So what I would suggest is, like, when you have that, you know, there's something that you know, and you want to know it from your heart. Just kind of notice, let yourself know it, but also step back and notice where, kind of, which part of you is knowing it. What does that really feel like? What's that experience of being someone who knows something? Right? How you can write something out about it. You can write a letter or whatever it is about it, and then start to. Let go of the knowledge around it and let the essence start to come forth. Here's a way to practice it. Like, I love to do this with a tree. I go out and I look at a tree. I used to be a a forestry major, so I you know, once knew a lot about trees. I can look at a tree and say, okay, that's a Douglas fir, and it's this old, and this is how you use it, and this is how you identify it. Or I can kind of let all that kind of be suspended and go into the immediacy of how this tree is there right now. And of course, as I do that, I have to become immediate. I have to let things, I have to let go of that person who knows and will actually be alive for what's really there. So whatever the the thing it is, you start to build that kind of relationship to it. Thank you. You're welcome. I mean, the other way is that sometimes life will give you um, opportunities for you to learn it, whether you want to or not. Yeah, like my grandfather, you know, it's like, yeah, this too shall pass. Okay, see yourself deteriorate a month with prostate cancer. This too shall pass. You can't argue with that. So we we sometimes have to learn lessons um, the hard way. Sometimes we can learn them in a more gentle way. Yeah. Thank you, David. All right, Jen, go ahead. Hi, uh, this is actually
1: Jen. I'm Toby. Um, but we changed the the thingy. (laughs) Um, one sort of, uh, thing that was, that I read that was really meaningful to me that's, that's related to this topic is, uh, Chogyam Trungpa's uh, cutting through spiritual materialism. And I think the way that it related to this for me was that it was, it kind of, articulated that if you're not being really careful and mindful that your spiritual practice can be reifying your sense of self and all the the you know um the three delusions or sorry the three poisons as much as it is sort of uh learning about them encountering them and i think about knowledge you know when you talk about knowledge it can come with so much pride and It is a form of like currency that you can use in order to gain, you know, reputation or praise and all the things that, you know, spirituality in general and Buddhism in particular is really trying to like help you to break down and to understand. Mm -hmm. And that book was really shattering to me, I think, because it made me really have to reflect on elements of my practice that I thought were part of the practice but really were in some ways antithetical to the practice you know and really rethink how i was relating to uh the knowledge that i was gaining about certain parts of the practice or just knowledge about buddhism you know what i read intellectually what i thought was really interesting but then how i related to it in terms of like um uh what it meant for myself and what it meant to share with others so that was i don't know that was something that really resonated with me
0: Great, thank you for sharing that, Toby. Yeah, that's yeah, that's exactly right. That's a powerful way of, of describing the same kind of pitfall we get into. Is that we can, if we're not aware of it, our our mind or sense of self or ego can really be allured by all these teachings. It's like I'm getting, I'm becoming a much more polished, shiny sense of me with all these 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 new senses of of, of information, and that's where that that's one of those. this kind of that. Um, like we're talking with Dave, there's, I think there's often this kind of choice point. Like there's this Buddhist Sutta where he's talking about two kinds of thought the thought that leads to suffering, the thought that leads to freedom, you know, and just to start to have that clarity. So you can see that same thing in that juxtaposition as you just presented from Trumpa's um, famous book is that does it lead to uh, consolidating a sense of self, reinforcing the sense of self, or does it lead to that sense of self releasing into deep connection, you know, the deep deep unity. And there's a tremendous of honesty that needs to, to be there. And also, we have to have the right timing and also a quality of, of courage because, you know, our whole lives for most of us is based around making the sense of self. This is where everything's oriented around. It doesn't matter if it's a sense of self which is prideful and egotistical or a sense of self which is, you know, painful and diminished, it just kind of re that's that that terrain. And it's this this edge that we as our practice deepens, we have to be willing to trust, have a leap of faith, really. Like, if I let go, if this sense of self falls away, I'm not going to be just disappear, I'm not going to like vanish like a soap bubble, but there's actually going to still be this presence that's actually perhaps much more alive, much more. Uh, connected than anything we can imagine from the other side, but yep that's that's a great way of, of framing that, so thanks for bringing that forth. All right, anyone else in the room or online? Yeah, Colin. Um,
2: yeah, could you speak a little bit about maybe the near enemy of letting go, which might be indifference hmm. and it seems to me there's sort of a balance, too, in terms of, uh, at least my own philosophy, is you put in the effort, but you sort of let go of the results. Like, you're mm-hmm. not really in control of that. And I'm just wondering, um, even the effort, is that supposed to be let go as
0: well? Yeah, so effort, letting go, then your enemy, that whole whole terrain there. Yeah. Yeah, letting go, it's, it's one of our stock phrases, right? Just let go, <laughs> you know, let go of this and let go of that. And sometimes it's it's not really a, um, a letting go. It's more of a trying to push away, you know, throw away. And unfortunately, when we have that energy, it's a little bit like we have a um, like some sticky tape that we're trying to get rid of it, and it sticks to our other hand. It just gets more and more of a mess. Or like Brower Rabbit with the um, what was it the the doll that was made out of tar, the tar baby. Got really mad and he punched it and then he, his hand got stuck. she kicked it and his foot got stuck. It's a little bit like that, you know. Is, is that there can be s- subtle energy around that letting go? And I, I prefer to think of it more as letting it, like let go of you. Yeah. You know, and so the paradox is having this sense of. I mean, we have to kind of. There's different ways we can approach this. Um, there's sometimes it's really clear there's some patterns or actions that's really helpful to have that kind of clarity okay i'm going to let go of this and but more from a subtle way when we're that more deeper quality letting go it's much more of it letting go of us it's almost like you just open your hands and have a complete doesn't matter if this stays or goes you know i'm here with it and that in itself it starts to loosen from you starts to fall away and so that's kind of that that back to that wise effort there's kind of different modes of effort. Because sometimes we need to really bring a lot of, you know, really will and effort to not send that email that's going to cause a lot of harm. To, you know, take a breath and, and and be more skillful in this moment. And there's other times the effort becomes much more softer, much more gentle. It's really the letting go of all effort is really that where effort goes to. So it's not like we can just have one mode. We have to... You know, recognize where you know what's needed in this moment, and you know the subtlety, the subtle aspects often have a greater way of of transforming us, because you know we're, we're releasing, we're letting go. It's letting go of us, that those deeper attachments, or as Toby was talking about, that that way of investment in selfing starts to fall away, and the the more firm letting go, or the firm, the kind of will driven helps kind of ideally quiet down the system. Because there's so much noise, it's like we have a bucket of water with a bunch of mud, we're shaking it up, it's very muddy, but we let it settle, it becomes more clear. So can I get to your question? Yeah. Anything else about it? Um, maybe just indifference versus uh, because oh, yeah. so it's easy to, at least for me, to pretend like, like oh, I don't care. Uh-huh. You, that's
2: kind of an easy way to tell myself. Like,
0: I don't like it. Okay, nice. So. The other, other aspect was indifference. You know, where does that come in versus equanimity? And this is one of the, the a really important piece because sometimes we can feel like that sense of, I don't know why these analogies come up, but like the Paul Simon song, Paul, Paul and Gar, uh, Simon and Garfunkel song, you know, I am a rock, I'm an island, you know, no one can touch me. Is like that sense of in, indifference. I'm isolated, I'm separate. And that's what, what I was trying to touch upon, is how compassion kind of needs to be part of it. That, that sense, of I'm kind of, okay, I don't really care, but if I tune into myself, there's that way I'm kind of turned away. There's a sense of isolation, of separation. The heart isn't there. You know, it's much, I don't know if you can be indifferent from a heart. You can be indifferent from the head. Heart can be hurt and shut down and not wanting to open, But it's not really indifferent right it's like i'm this is too painful to open open to but the mind can kind of convince us that we don't really care and so you start to know who's in charge right now is it the mind who's kind of telling you this is how you can do it or is it the heart that's willing like okay here's some pain can i open to that pain can i be with that and then there's a because true equanimity has a very different feeling because it's really that sense of of self loosens its root it becomes not so anchored and then it just doesn't make sense to be nearer or closer than anything equanimity we can define as being equally close to all things right you know and the mind can have its idea what that looks like but that goes into that yeah that shadow or that near enemy of indifference does that help yeah thanks for that follow-up all right, so we got the other side of the dynamic duel there. Valerie, go ahead.
3: Thank you very much for uh, the talk. And um, so a couple of months ago, we, uh, our KM group discussed about a book it's called Seeing That Freeze by Robert Bea mm-hmm. And the discussion was, um, for at least for me, when I was working with the five aggregates um, to to really penetrate and see how we can use the five aggregates um, to understand impermanence and to understand anatta uh, non-self. And while I use the six sense doors, it feels a little bit more concrete. And vetna was more concrete. But as I move further into the more, I guess, formless realms, like uh, consciousness is a little bit less easy for me to see. And it doesn't sustain as easily. Um, do you, uh, if you could, have any wisdom to impart on how we can use that and sustain that throughout outside of the practice, as well?
0: Sure. So, how do you sustain that kind of focus on something like impermanence through the five aggregates, especially the more kind of ethereal ones or ones which are a little harder to to get a handle on? Yes. You know, I think it's helpful to find some some entry point or some handle we can kind of get a hold of for the practice. And I like to keep it simple myself. It's like, what's a simple way of doing it? Because our minds like to make it super elaborate, but it can kind of boil down. We've talked a couple of ways tonight about just making it very simple. So for myself, working with the aggregates, I tend to key on the, the aggregate of the volitional impulses or the sankaras because that one kind of, I can feel that, you know, somatically. I can feel that when I'm kind of doing something with this moment. There's just a little friction with it. I'm thinking about it, or I'm judging it, or I'm resisting it, or I'm wanting it. But all of that is kind of this process of the sankharas these little, almost microscopic, volitional choices that kind of keep me tied up into that, that whole theory. That actually shows up with all the aggregates, because if you have a, a moment of uh, you have a sense state and there's a vedana that arises with it if there's no aggregate or no uh, volitional piece kind of doing something with it it's just pleasant or unpleasant it just arises and passes away it's so when we start to say oh that's me that's a sense of self and kind of have for myself that that kind of easy that handle or accessible handle since the self sometimes it gets kind of hard to figure out where that is But if I really notice just I'm trying to do something with this moment, having some kind of way of adjusting it or rebalancing it or arguing with it, and just start to don't worry about the details of it and just say, okay, let me see if I can relax. You know, that's another way of saying instead of releasing, it's relaxing. Let me self-relax into the stillness, you know, relax into the quiet around that. And that allows, you know, that allows it to start to um, unhook from you right so that's that's really gonna going into the, the non-self way not so much the impermanence way of ex- expressing it but try to find some some way that, that kind of you can feel that you can really f- identify it somatically or in your body you can notice the mind state it's like okay i can sense that and then versus in contrast when you release that and there's just like a complete abiding in peace in this moment so you kind of have that, okay, which one am I doing in this moment? So with impermanence, you know, I think impermanence is one of the gateways. I have such a bias toward um, anatta uh, in the way I practice, so, but I tend to look at impermanence, look at how that applies to you as a sense of self, how that arises and passes away. Yeah, Does that help at all, Valerie?
3: Yes, that does. Thank you so much.
0: Great. Thank you for your question. All right, anyone back here in the room? We've got a few more minutes. Yes, do you mind coming up so they can hear you online?
2: Hi, thanks, Tim. Um, I think I'm wondering if, if through experience we gain wisdom. I'm worried that my delusion... You know, on a daily basis, based on what I experience, will prevent me from perceiving things clearly. So, I think my perception of the world today is very different than my perception five years ago. Mm-hmm. And so, I'm wondering if the wisdom gained through experience, like what strategies there are to make sure that causality is not misattributed or to make sure that, um, not to make sure, but to make it easier to um, interpret things clearly rather than, you know, continuing down a path that may be clouded or confused.
0: Okay, great. Yeah, so the question to summarize is around how do we best learn you know, f- from life and how our, our delusion can sometimes make us not really learn those lessons in a in a deep way and instead actually reinforce our delusion. Is, is that part of it? You know, for myself, I think a lot of people experience this, that we, I mean, our practice is, by definition, always kind of working on that edge of delusion and wisdom. It's like we're kind of learning to see more and more clearly. But it's mixed. We spend a lot of time doing things unconsciously in ways that coming from greed and hatred and delusion. And we just, a lot of it is doing the best you can around it. You know, so okay, I'm gonna keep doing it. And starting to a key into to dukkha, okay? The experience of dukkha. Because that's gonna be a, a helpful, that friction, that pushback, that feedback. Because if you're relating to life from delusion, you're gonna have some dukkha with that. right, so just realize that when there's the dukkha, that means there's something, you know, that's unclear around this. And the trick, one of the uh, easy kind of um, slip ups we can do is to go to judge that, right? Say like, oh, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm acting from greed, so I'm going to add hatred to that. (laughs) Try to hate my greed away. You know, it it doesn't work too well. So just be, you know, very compassionate for yourself. There's a lot of patience with that but just start to notice when, when there's that feeling of dukkha, like that subjective feeling of suffering, that there's probably something a little bit off or incomplete with the way I'm seeing it. Have a lot of compa- bring and bring the compassion right after that, after you notice that. The compassion starts to explore that and see that. And there's been times, you know, a number of times in my practice where I've kind of had this, this kind of deeper seeing, this kind of clarity that kind of came forth, like, like around resistance, for example, or what it means to relax. I remember working with that for many years, and there'd be times when I just saw it more clearly, and sometimes it would just suddenly open up, like, oh, this is what I've been doing. I finally see through this in a way I didn't see it before. And in that moment, for myself anyway, I could feel the sadness and grief of all the time I've spent acting from that deluded place, but it, and tears are flowing, but it's also some uh, tears of joy. Really, it's like almost like releasing that and and just acknowledging it. And for myself, anyway, that just made that more poignant. It's like, wow, I finally have seen through this. You know, so I don't have to to judge myself for being lost. It's like I celebrate the fact that I finally see it more clearly. All right. So just you know realize that you know for a long time there's going to be a healthy amount of delusion kind of mixed in. Just notice that suffering, have that sincerity of noticing, like all the things we've talked about. You know, how are you selfing around it? How is delusion coming up around it? How how you, How is the suffering coming around it? And see if you can have that movement away from the certainty into just that wonder, right? And that becomes, it's really, that's kind of the knack that we have to learn is, I've used this a couple of times, is that, that choice point you know, suffering or not suffering, selfing or not selfing, dukkha or non-dukkha. You know, as you start to get more toned, uh, um, attuned to that, then that becomes a, a guideway, a guidepost, I should say, for how you meet each moment. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Anyone else? Uh, questions, they help me bring out different parts of the teaching, so I appreciate your courage in asking those. Okay, Austin, good to see you. Go ahead. Tim, thank you so much for this talk, and One of the ways my wisdom grows is I have fewer and fewer words to say. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Sitting and and taking in the Dharma, just showing up, and I can't explain it. It's just um, I'm comfortable sitting here in silence with other people and not just being with the the. In the Dharma, and something about that feels wiser and wiser to me as I deepen my practice. Yes, yeah. go ahead. Is that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Austin. Yeah, because yeah, for many years, I mean, you had lots of really engaging questions around it, and and working with it, and that was all part of the process. And now you're you're sharing that there's that. That way, just there's this integration. It's like, that's why I talked about, you know, when wisdom really starts to grow, we we don't have to really proclaim it. We don't have to, you know, protect it. Or it just is like, it's unfutable. We know that for ourselves. And we start to resonate more and more with that. So I appreciate you uh, sharing that. And I, I, I do see that in you. All right, anyone else like to share or ask anything? All right, come on up.
4: The examples that you shared tonight were uh, examples of pretty extreme suffering you know, your grandfather's cancer, and your kidney stones, and just made me think about, you know, the necessity of suffering in order to gain wisdom, Mm -hmm. and whether that is sort of necessary, or those of us who are lucky enough to have lived lives thus far untouched Mm -hmm. by extreme suffering, do you gain what wisdom you can gain in the time that you have through compassion or just in noticing those microscopic moments of discomfort or yeah, how one earns that badge of of wisdom without needing to go through such a terrible thing. I mean, it brought to mind, I'm an English teacher, so, you know, like one of the last lines of, the play oedipus by sophocles is mm-hmm. basically just with suffering comes wisdom mm-hmm. and that's just how it ends and just you think okay well i don't want to go through that thanks but how do i acquire that
0: mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's a great question one way to think about meditation practice is it allows us to learn those lessons on a in a more subtle way, you know because we can, often we need like the big things to kind of catch our attention, and finally we make some kind of course correction because we just have no other choice it's like this just things have fallen apart, you know like that that classic um, from twelve step when you really hit bottom, just okay this just this, I really can 't deny that I have a problem with addiction we can in practice we can start to learn to have that that learn those lessons in much more subtle ways you know just that subtle way of how we contract around things the subtle ways that dukkha arises the subtle ways cuz there's really there's no guarantee that life is going to we're going to be able to hear the lessons that life gives us it can you know give you lots of suffering and you may not come out more wise necessarily from that right but meditation starts to make you more Inclined toward wisdom and you start to notice it in the release this small ways it's like that um that small little bit of how do we meet this this very moment it may feel like that's insignificant but that's i think that's a misperception it's like that small way of meeting like this breath this mind state holds kind of the template for how we meet much bigger things we start to release that you know we start to learn from that that actually inclines us to opening in, in deeper and deeper ways. Yeah, so the, it's really that sincerity, that's really what matters, and that willingness to be transformed by what we see. We can see in a very, in a very something very subtle, very simple, that it can transform us. You know, something really big and shocking, it's too big for the system, we become lost in the trauma response. You know, it takes a while to kind of cool all that down to be able to learn from it. Yeah, so don't yeah don't, don't negate the small learnings. I think that's. I think a lot of us we start to to notice that before we started to practice, we kind of needed a lot of stuff to catch our attention, and we may notice like, oh, I'm just i feel a little bit of tightness in my in my belly. I'm going to change how I'm speaking right now. I don't before, before I would have to wait till I actually blurted that out and caused all this harm and have to deal with it. It's like, oh yeah, I guess I wasn't skillful. We just catch it much more early. Yeah. So it's it's not so much the intensity or the bigness, it's more how we're meeting it, how sincerely we're making we're meeting it. That's where wisdom grows. Yeah, the stories I told are just a little more interesting than you know, I was sitting listening to the bird and I stopped hearing it as bird and just sound. You know, it's not as <laughs> not as exciting, I guess. Yeah, that's a great point. All right, thank you again for your generosity and support of Sims and all the teachers. And I hope you have a wonderful week. And we'll see you uh, next week, if you liked, for the discussion and integration of this topic of wisdom. All right, goodbye, everyone online. Thank you all here in person. If you have a couple minutes, you can help us take things downstairs. You can see... Dave or Reed or Shelley, and they can help guide you. All right, goodbye.